This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Komsik in for Libby Snymer this week. The reason Libby's off is she's preparing for the world premiere of her documentary called Cancer Saved My Life. We'll talk to her about it in a few moments. And we'll also talk to the head of Health Quality Ontario about a new report the organization's released on the state of health care in this province. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Bob Dylan was named the winner of the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature last week in a stunning announcement that for the first time bestowed the award to someone primarily seen as a musician. The Swedish Academy cited Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. The Literature Award was the last of this year's Nobel Prizes to be announced. The six awards will be handed out December 10th, the anniversary of prize founder Alfred Nobel's death in 1896. Margaret Atwood has won another writing award. The Canadian novelist and poet, the co-winner of the Penn Pinter Prize, and will share the honour with a Bangladeshi author who was injured in an attack by suspected militants. The award established in 2009 in memory of Nobel Prize-winning playwright Harold Pinter. It goes jointly to a British, Irish, or Commonwealth writer and to an international writer who has faced persecution. It turns out heart rate monitors worn on the wrist may not be that accurate. A new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association compared heart rate data from three sources. A wrist-worn device, a monitor that used a chest strap, and the medical gold standard electrocardiogram, or EKG. The wrist-worn devices and EKG often didn't match, while the chest strap device gave a number closer to reality. One of the founding members of the New Orleans girl group, the Dixie Cups, has died of congestive heart failure. Joan Marie Johnson was 72. Their 1964 hit Chapel of Love, knocking the Beatles' Love Me Do out of top spot on the charts. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame later included it as part of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. As you know, Libby Snymer is usually the one in this chair interviewing the newsmakers, but today she's the newsmaker. Monday, October 17th, the documentary Cancer Saved My Life will air on our sister station, Vision TV, and elsewhere. It's the story of Libby's well-documented battle with pancreatic cancer and the genetic mutation that ultimately helped her overcome the deadliest part of the disease. Here's an exclusive clip from the documentary. 
I've had a steady schedule of CT scans, MRIs, and other tests ever since I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006. That's when I found out that I carry a cancer-causing genetic mutation. The resident in Emerge, you know, tells me I have pancreatic cancer. We have patients who die within a few weeks of this diagnosis. We concluded at the time that it was inoperable. The thing about cancer, of course, is that it strikes families. So gaunt and skinny, basically a skeleton. So that was kind of frightening, I must say. Sometimes the hardest thing is to just stand by and watch. Maybe might die. What we saw after two months was a really dramatic shrinkage of your cancer. I d honestly don't remember ever seeing something to that degree in such a short period of time. Little did I know that the flaw that caused both my cancers would ultimately save my life. What was it like doing this? The aspect of it that was most interesting is that there are a number of different stories and trying to weave them all together because there are a number of different things about this that I think are, are really important and the things that I was really interested in exploring. So I think a lot of our listeners know my story. I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I was not expected to make it. I made a miraculous recovery based on brilliant work by my doctors. And the reason you did this, aside from obviously providing some, some hope to, to viewers who will be seeing the, the documentary, is also the promise of uh, possible breakthroughs based on your case, which has led to ongoing uh, research in this area. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. So I, I remember that uh, for a number of years after my recovery, and at that point we didn't know how long it would last, my doctors kept saying, oh, you know, it's a one-off and we don't draw any conclusions about it. But they started testing all their consecutive patients for the same mutation that I have and trying to treat them the same, the same way. And uh, it's interesting because it's basically the first subset of pancreatic cancer that they have identified and figured out how to treat. And even though most people don't do as well as I did, people do better than the general population of pancreatic cancer. And, and it wasn't until I actually did the documentary that I understood the extent to which there is research based on my case. I knew there was. And uh, when I went through my file, a big hunk of my medical file was the permissions and the ethical analysis for getting my tumor, which I was more than happy to give them. But I was surprised at the extent of the research that is still going on based on my case, because uh, what they really need to find out is why did I respond so well and how can they use that to help other people in a basic way. As much as this zeroes in on you, there is also the impact on loved ones. 
Well, uh, there's two aspects to that. First of all, every case of cancer is a crisis in every family that it strikes. Moses made the very uh, trenchant observation that cancer strikes families, and you see how the family reacts. That's at the one level. But in our case, uh, there is a genetic mutation, a cancer-causing mutation in the family. And it was only discovered a little over 20 years ago, about 22 years ago. And I found out when I was already middle-aged and had already been diagnosed with breast cancer. And one of the things that really interested me is that what about the children of all the people who have been diagnosed, who grow up knowing to one degree or another that they may have something like this? And my uh, brother Sam also tested positive, and he has two children at the age where they have to start thinking about this. And it's kind of heart-wrenching, but we examine that in the documentary, and that was one of the things that inspired me to do it because it's it's a whole other ball game for a young person possibly facing this and and all these questions of do they want to test when do they want to test what do they want to do uh, and you know as we discover as medical science discovers more and more genetic information like this this is something that is really going to face more and more people as people have now listened what can they expect to see when they catch your world premiere of your documentary on Monday night? Uh, They can expect to sort of watch along as my doctors figured out a novel treatment. And the strange thing about it is that basically the genetic mutations that caused my cancer ended up saving my life. So people will see how that happened, how it's being used to help others. You can watch the documentary this Monday at 9 p.m. on Vision TV, Rogers Channel 60 and 237, Bell 261, and Bell 5 213. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up after the break, a state of health care report has been released by Health Quality Ontario. The president and CEO joins me next. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It's being called the broadest portrayal of quality health care to date. Health Quality Ontario has just released its annual report called Measuring Up 2016, using data from the experts and patients to discuss the real needs and areas of improvement in the health care system. Dr. Joshua Tepper, President and CEO of Health Quality Ontario, joins me on the phone. First off, Dr. Tepper, what's this report all about? So this is our annual report that looks at the breadth of the healthcare system and how it's performing, sort of the, the good and the bad uh, over the last year. And it looks in every part of the healthcare system. The people who work in it, home care, primary care, hospitals, it is the most comprehensive picture we have of Ontario's health system. What's good? A number of things. So first of all, on things like public health, we've seen smoking going down. We've seen cancer rates, uh, screening for colon cancer specifically, improving. And then when some of the wait times, which we hear a lot about, have been improving as well, and specifically around certain cancer surgeries. What's not so good? So areas we'd like to see 
improvement on include mental health and addiction, palliative care, and then really making sure that areas that are improving for some people of the population are improving for all. And specifically what I'm saying is we see opportunities for improvement for people in the north, for uh, those who are of lower socioeconomic class with a lower income level, and new Canadians. A couple of areas you touched on there that you feel you'd like to see more improvement. Palliative care. Mm-hmm. So, number of things. First of all, we know from the literature that people, in most cases, many cases, would like to pass away, to die at home. But in fact, we see large percentages dying in hospitals. We also see in the last uh, month of life uh, a number of unplanned emergency visits, about 30% or higher. And again, we'd never expect this to be zero, but this is just far too high. And then similarly and related to this, uh, in the last month of life, too small a number of people see a physician in their home. So we're having people dying not where they want to be, having care not where it should be delivered. So some real opportunities here. How do we improve that? I think it's a collective effort. Uh, one of the things we need to recognize is that healthcare and any individual part, such as palliative care, is really complicated. And there are a lot of different players, and it looks different from a downtown setting to a rural setting, north and south, culturally appropriate for different communities. So it, it, there's no quick fix. But what I do think we increasingly see is systems and infrastructure being brought to bear. And so the Ontario Palliative Care Network is a new organization sort of being sponsored by Cancer Care Ontario, the regional health authorities, HQO, or our organizations playing in that as well. So we hope that new body, as it gets going, will help to really improve the overall access to care and make sure people are getting palliative care when they need it and where it's most appropriate. What did the report find as far as access to timely care? It's a mixed bag. Uh, There are certainly some improvements in some areas and in some parts of the province, including access to long-term care homes in some places has improved, especially from the hospital. Uh, Access for certain surgeries like cardiac surgery and cancer surgery has improved. In other cases, some of our emergency department wait times are not where they should be. Sometimes access to primary care is not what we would like to see it as. So, again, where we have had some really consistent policy and systematic multi-year efforts, there has been some really positive moving of the dial. Uh, And now we just need to continue to focus on other areas where the data suggests we have not moved it as substantially. Dr. Tepper, did the findings generally leave you... I wouldn't say shrugging your shoulders, but maybe not all that surprised by some of the findings. And did some of them maybe raise some eyebrows in a good way? Again, I think there was some really good news. Uh, And again, I think I mentioned a few of them and there's others uh, where we have seen really marked improvement. Uh, I talked about smoking. I talked about cancer screening. I talked about surgery wait times in some areas. And there's others, such as the use of antipsychotic medication in long-term care homes. That's been reduced. Uh, The use of physical restraints in long-term care homes. That's been reduced. Uh, Making sure that we're seeing non-complicated illnesses out of the hospital and in the community where we should be seeing them, that's been steadily improving over many years. So again, you know, we're often quick to criticize and often very thoughtfully and based on real Uh, problems that exist, but it's also good to sometimes pause and recognize that there are some steady trends of improvement in our system.
Dr. Temper, thanks so much for helping us understand where we measure up. Thank you so much for your time. Have a good day. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby's Nimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. In a moment, we'll celebrate the 75th birthday of a Zoomer music legend, Paul Simon, when we return. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick, and it's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, experience a theatrical revival of Dangerous Liaisons as Tony Winners, Liev Schreiber, and Janet McTeer get sexy and savage. They are loathsome. They're hateful. They have no care for anybody. They just want to ruin people, all for their own gratification. In Los Angeles, on stage for one more week, it's the classic musical Bye Bye Birdie about a recently drafted rock and roll star visiting a small town for a TV show. And in London, the Royal Academy of the Arts in the posh Mayfair district has assembled a huge exhibition of works from the abstract expressionist movement of the 20th century. Headline names include Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, and Mark Rothko. The show continues in London until the end of October. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. One of the greatest musical icons of the Zoomer generation celebrated a milestone birthday this week. Paul Simon turned 75. When Paul was just 11, he found himself in a school class with another young musician, Art Garfunkel. The two quickly became friends and spent their teenage years writing and performing songs, honing their craft. In 1964, they had an audition with Clive Davis at Columbia Records. He was impressed with the duo and signed them under the name Simon and Garfunkel. Their debut album was titled Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., and at first it didn't garner much attention. But over time, one of the songs on the album became a small hit for the duo, the first less successful version of The Sound of Silence. But they used a new version of that song as the springboard to their second album called Sounds of Silence, which was a critical and popular success. From that point on, their music career was established and the duo released multiple albums with iconic songs like Homeward Bound, Cecilia, and Scarborough Fair. One of their biggest hit songs was written for the 1967 film The Graduate. The lyrics revolving around the plot of the movie where the young Benjamin Braddock, played by Dustin Hoffman, is seduced by the much older Mrs. Robinson. That was Simon and Garfunkel with Mrs. Robinson. This week, Paul Simon celebrating his 75th birthday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Kopsick. Thanks for joining me. Libby will return to this chair next week. Be sure to come back then to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Dave Woodard and Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.